Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This mine? Yes. Water yes. bowls are too small. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I added too many condiments and I should have... I don't like avocado. Hmm. So my Mexican card gets revoked every time I tell people that. Yeah, for real. <laughs> we brought more than enough soup and about the same amount of questions to City Hall for Supervisor Asha Safai. Safai represents District 11, which is in the southern part of the city. It includes the Excelsior, Outer Mission, Cayuga, and Mission Terrace neighborhoods. He's been on the board since 2017, having won his election in 2016, his second run for that seat. Safai told us why he proposed creating a Homelessness Oversight Commission, how he thinks the police department could actually fill its vacancies, and what burglars took from his home. I'm Cynthia Lopez. And I'm Laura Wenis. This is SF Next, Fixing Our City. And today, our third episode of Soup with the Soups. So we're eating tortilla soup. Why did you pick this soup? I just like the blend of everything that's in it. It's comforting. It's I guess it's the Mexican version of chicken soup with, you know, a little bit of flair. I love avocado. I love the cotija and chicken and the broth. So the flavors to me are what make the soup special. And it's not too filling. So personally, I never grew up with tortilla soup. And the first time I had it was at a friend's house. And so I went home and I was like, I think I could make this better than the store-bought stuff she got. <laughs> uh-huh. And it just came out so perfect. And I was like, okay, I see what thing. the hype is. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Do it yourself. A good choice on Thank soup. You. Well, good. Well, I'm glad I started off on a good note. All right. Let's talk about some actual government stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's move from soup talk to soup talk. <laughs> I was just reading about how you've had your house broken into. And mm-hmm. I think this was late last year. Is that right? Yeah, it was end of October. I know that you know that this is a pretty common thing to happen in San Francisco and that a lot of your constituents have experienced. What do you wish had gone differently? What could have been different that might have prevented this from happening? I mean, I have to tell you, I got calls from people that saw it in the news. People were like, this has happened to me. Someone came into our home and stole all our things. It's pretty shocking to think that someone could come into your home take something, a stove. The stove is not a one-person job. No. It's a few-people job. Yeah. And when they got the video footage, you saw the car went down the street the wrong way. So they didn't know the neighborhood, but they went down the one-way street a couple of times. I guess mm-hmm. they were trying to wait to see. Um, they were and then, it. Yeah. And then it's a few people are taking it out of your home. And so it's violating, but it's also essentially what I think a lot of people are feeling in San Francisco right now, this rise in crime, this rise in home invasions, this rise in burglaries. And even if it's not on the statistic front, they hear about the brazen nature of the crimes that are happening. And I think that's what then shocks people. And this to me was, I was absolutely blown away. The only thing I can say saving grace was that it must have been professional people because there was not a scratch 
you would not have known a <laughs> oh stove was in my house. But the reason I shared it publicly was because I wanted people to know that I was experiencing some of the same things they are, you know, on a daily basis. So it's something that we're very concerned about and we're, we're putting a lot of effort and energy into to try to help. Safai is hoping that staffing up the police department will help. We wanted to know how exactly he thinks the department ought to do that. There are a few hundred vacant funded positions within the police department. I mean, so the question is, it's not necessarily about money, it's about process and how you make government work better. So that's one. Two. Well, let's let me stop you on that and sure, ask sure. for some specifics because this is in fact something that we have looked into on this podcast, and we talked to like professional recruiters who work with police departments, and all over the country, they're like, it's so hard to get cops. The lateral transfer bonuses are insane. I think one of the main takeaways that we found is that you have to talk to younger generations about law enforcement differently than you did previously. Uh-huh. Like there's a lot of difference in the philosophy of the way that people in other generations or the younger generations come into these jobs. Mm-hmm. Also, you have to be on social media. You can't be doing like billboards anymore. Are we talking about doing any of these new things? Well, one thing that we have that, we, that I am in support of is you talked about the bonuses. So definitely we're supportive Law enforcement, this is kind of a price match situation. There's other places around the Bay Area. I mean, we can't compete with, someone's gonna live in another state, they're gonna live in another state potentially. But in terms of what is being offered up front, we should be able to match that. And I think that's what we're, we're advocating for. And then you also have retention. But you know what the overall, another thing that I hear over and over and over again, and we are engaging on as well, just a general sense of morale. People want to feel valued. And I think there's a, there was a sense within the police department, if you talk to just frontline police officers, that they were not feeling that they were being supported or valued. Let's talk about a different kind of crime that is still ongoing, which is retail, retail theft. You formed the Organized Retail Theft Working Group in, mm-hmm. I believe, 2021? Mm-hmm. That's correct. We appear to still have a retail theft problem. What did Although, that group accomplish? Well, one thing we did is we passed for the first time in the city's history. We expanded the option for law enforcement to be present and hired by private entities beyond just the police department, so including the sheriff's department. So we did that in our 10A legislation. So they work for the city, but they can still be hired out privately. Yes, right. And before there was a monopoly just for police officers. It was written Mm -hmm. in a way that was allowed just police officers to do that. So we expanded that. And that was something that we did collaboratively with the police and the sheriff and the chief and this organized retail crime working group. How do they have time to do this if they're all working all this overtime because this police department is so understaffed? You have a... 1900 member department not all of them were working overtime at the same time yeah 800 member sheriff's department not all of them were working at the same time but it's part of the reason why you don't see as many doing it now is because of some of the short staffing Mm -hmm. but so that was one another thing we did is we required permitting for street vending so we were able to at least in our district we've seen a, a major shift in the people that were out there selling stolen goods we've seen a shift at the 24th Street Bar Station, it's not perfect. It's still present. Some of it has shifted to other areas. And so beefing up public works, the inspectors to go out, working with the police department in collaboration, it's had, it's had some impact for sure. And there still needs more time for it to be implemented. So 
The, the other thing that changed is our new district attorney has now dedicated a couple of her assistant district attorneys to organized retail theft. So if a crime happens and someone is caught, a lot of times there's some violence involved, but it requires follow-up with the actual retail person, the person that's working on the front line. If they don't have that follow-up, if they don't know that they can have time off, if they're not followed up with an investigator, a lot of times the cases fall apart and then you have a lot of the repeat offenders. So her making this a priority, the new district attorney making it a priority, you've seen a dramatic shift. This makes me think of a topic that I'm bringing up with every member of the board, which is this need to serve your constituents in your district who might have certain priorities and wants and needs, but also, you know, you are making legislation that affects the entire city. So like you're beholden to the people who elected you in some ways, but you are legislating for everybody. How do you balance those priorities? So when I came into office, there was a, a, a general sense of feeling neglected across the board when it came to city services, resources, investment. So we spent the first few years heavily, heavily pushing for direct investments in affordable housing, parks, greening, cleaning, all you know, transportation, traffic calming, all the things that we heard over and over again. But also thinking about the citywide implications of some of the legislation that we do. Because legislation is usually has a much broader impact than kind of targeted. So the direct services, departmental, city government, investment, private or otherwise, really we tried to target toward the district. Legislatively, when we were doing affordable housing, inclusionary housing, when we were doing project labor agreements, when we were doing environmental legislation that had to do with recycling and getting to zero waste in our city, all of those had broad citywide implication that was beneficial to the residents of our district because a lot of them are working families and come from families that are directly involved in the relationship to the legislation, whether it was where they could live, where they could work, and how they would thrive. That's how we approach it, and that's how we balance it. What if people in your district don't want something there? You mentioned housing. There's often pushback against affordable housing. There's often pushback against new condos. There's often pushback against homelessness, shelters, services, et cetera. And, and like, we need geographic equity in those and we don't have it. Yeah. Well, so we, we actually had, we were the very first district in the city to have safe parking. Mm. We saw that based on a growth in the number of people that were living in vehicles in our district. And so... We had a community meeting. I've never had more people show up for a community meeting in my entire 20 years of being in that district. And we're about a thousand people. Well, about a third came in with pitchforks saying that you're never going to get reelected. Would you put this next to your house? A third came in really willing to listen and had skepticism, but were willing to listen. Third came in in support. And you know what? In the end of the day, we did it and we showed it could be successful. A lot of the people that were opposed to it subsequently came back and said, you know, you you were right. Okay, that might have been an easy one, but a more controversial question now is where to place safe consumption sites. We'll ask Supervisor Safai a question from a Twitter user after a break. Before we go, do you worry about the city's hollowed out downtown and what it means for the future? 
On Thursday, March 30th at 6 p.m., we'll be live at Manny's in the Mission, talking about how San Francisco might avoid getting caught in a doom loop. Details about the event are at welcometomannies.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Cynthia and I have been talking with Supervisor Asha Safai. We put out calls for questions for the supervisors on social media before these interviews, and many people have brought up safe consumption sites. One person wanted to know, quote, why the supervisor feels they will work if we don't have consequences for using drugs outdoors. I actually am in support of both sides of that question. One, I don't, I think calling them safe consumption sites is a misnomer. I think they're overdose prevention sites. And it's not, I'm not playing semantics because... Branding though, maybe a little bit. But it's important to call it that because if you think about the crisis that we have in the city, we had during the height of COVID, I mean, the number of people that overdosed in the city dwarfed, dwarfed the number of people that died of COVID. Yeah. So you're going in eyes wide open. What is your goal? The goal for me would be, and I think the city should be, to prevent overdoses. And so when we had the first one that's really opened up in the United States, the providers, Mr. Rivera come from Harlem, came and talked about it. San Francisco is looking to a facility in New York City's Harlem as a model. Its director, Sam Rivera, has spoken to the Board of Supervisors about how that safe consumption site works. Basically, you think if you say safe consumption, you think there's going to be a room. It's like an opium den. Everyone's lying on the ground, just doing drugs, smoking. That's not what it. I mean, you come in, you get an assessment. You're looking for where the person is, what their medical conditions might be. They have providers and nurses on site. They have job training. So it's actually a holistic facility. And then if you're someone that is addicted to drugs and you're concerned because you might die from fentanyl overdose or whatever other drugs you're using that could be laced with something that you could die from, then you have a place in that facility where there's medical professionals and others that are there to supervise you so you don't die. They have not had an overdose death. And he said, and this is again how I would imagine somewhat similar, their best and most important relationship in New York is with the NYPD. And they work in partnership with them to identify the locations where the drug use is happening, where the dealers might, and they're able to work with those individuals to help get them help. As in NYPD finds these people and they're like, hmm, maybe you should go to the safe right. prevention site. Or, or Mr. Rivera, get your team out here from the Overdose uh-huh. Prevention Center to come work with these folks. Mm-hmm. So I support a model of preventing people from overdosing and dying on the streets and using drugs on the streets. You know, we're committed to engaging on this aggressively. Those that are selling drugs and preying on people and selling drugs openly and aggressively, there needs to be consequences for those folks. I think you can balance it. I think you can go and prosecute the drug dealers, the ones that are the most egregious, and then you can work on 
You're not convinced. But if only there was such a clean distinction between users and dealers. I mean, so many times they're the same people. mm, Yeah, a little bit. I mean, like, I mean, yes, there are drug users that end up working for drug dealers as runners and holders and all that. But, I mean, it's pretty clear and evident who the drug dealers are versus the drug users. The egregious ones? Yes. What makes them egregious? Like, and if we know who they are, why are they still out there? Well, I mean, that's the question. I mean, yeah. someone's caught with a pound of fentanyl that can kill the entire city, and then they're sent to drug court, and they're back out on the street in a week or a day or two days or three days. That, to me, is an egregious offender. But someone that's caught with maybe a small amount that's a user that needs to be referred to treatment. And I think we need to have a conversation about how we get people into more treatment. Do we need to mandate that? We were able to do one of the first partnerships with adult probation because we saw that 70% of the recidivists were drug users. And so we worked with adult probation. We created what was called the therapeutic TRP over there in the Knob Hill Union Square area. 80 to 100 beds, people that were formerly incarcerated, that had drug addiction, rather than be referred to jail, we were given the opportunity to go into this abstinence-based treatment facility and begin to turn their lives around, return their life from crime and drug use and street use, all of those things. We need more models like that. So we can be doing a lot of different things that have the same, that have a similar impact or part of the same solution. I don't know how much more time we have, but, mm-hmm. but I, I did want to talk a little bit about Prop C and the work that we did to pass the... <laughs> yes. Let's talk about oversight commissions. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Let's not. do it. <laughs> what we're talking about here is Prop C from November 2022, which Safai sponsored and voters approved. It called for the creation of an oversight commission for the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. I wanted to know, why make another commission when we have so many of these bodies, some of which don't even have all of their seats filled? Well, guess what? For the first time in the city's history, there's going to be mandatory audits for the $700 plus million that's spent on this issue and topic. And why can't the existing city systems that are supposed to do oversight do that? Like, why can't the city administrator or the board have these audits done? Well, we can ask for them on one-offs. We can do it periodically. But this is now part of the controller's responsibility. I think what we heard more and more with homelessness oversight was people felt like we were spending a lot of money, but they weren't exactly feeling confident or they felt a strong lack of confidence that the money was being spent in the right way and that it was being utilized appropriately. And so I think that's what this has done. To go back to COVID, I mean... Wait, wait, whoa. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, but no, I, I wanna, I'm gonna draw the parallel. Okay. During COVID, we knew every day how many people, at least there was a, a dashboard, we knew how many people were contracting, how many people were referred to hospitals, how many people were recovering, how many people vaccinate. When you think about the homelessness issue in our city, we don't even know how many people are homeless on a daily basis. We only do that count once every two years. We don't know how many people are getting shelter. We don't know how many people are waiting on the wait list. We're, the, the data and the metrics that we need to infuse to answer your question about why more oversight is precisely for these kind of reasons. This is the kind of things that we need. I want to ask about political opinions, factions, divides on the board, between the board and the mayor. Et they don't exist. Oh, okay. I'm just kidding. 
Well, that was easy. Safai says he doesn't fit into one category or the other. He says it's critical for board members and the mayor to work together across differences because residents are fed up with not seeing progress. Safai has a background in urban planning, but worked for years in labor organizing. He's sometimes called a labor moderate. We wanted to know his take on the perception that unions have a lot of power in local politics. I think they do, but justifiably so. I mean, I think that this is the history of the labor movement in the United States. It really start and has its roots here in San Francisco with the work with the longshoremen and the fight for dignity and respect for those that were in that industry. This has always been a union town. And so how do you balance those interests with the interests of the city? And I think that's what you see play out sometimes. And I think that's why it's important to have strong leadership to really hear what labor wants, what is going to help working families, as well as how the city is going to advance together kind of collaboratively. I mean, I represent a part of town that has the highest concentration of labor households. One in four households mm-hmm. is, a, is, a, is a labor household. And as you know, the city and county of San Francisco is the largest employer in the city. Yeah. And so I think by nature of that, it dictates how policy and how conversation are shaped. Mm-hmm. And with that, we moved on to our lightning round of questions. If you were king or like ultra mayor or whatever, could do anything for a day in San Francisco, could make anything happen, what would you do? I would create enough housing to house every single person in the city. And that includes all different incomes. That includes people that are unhoused currently. I would make sure that we had the appropriate amount of housing that was the need for the city, for sure. You would snap your fingers and 82,000 units would sprout out of the ground. If if that's the right number. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so can you name an idea or a proposal or a policy from somebody that normally you disagree with that you think was a really good one and that we should go with. So Supervisor Dean Preston led the issue to move the election from 2023 for all of our citywide and move it to 2024. Dean and I don't always line up on a lot of issues, but that was one that I felt like democracy should rise above and the access to democracy and, and having your voice heard in some of the most important elections in the city, it just made sense. What keeps you up at night? <laughs> I mean, there's Ending a, there's, a cheerful question. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> mm, I don't know. I don't know. There's. I don't. I don't fret about things what in the middle of these the, people who just sleep. I, I guess if I were going to say what worries me yeah. the most. What worries me the most is is the future of our city. I mean, I think our reputation as a city has been tarnished. I think things that we have done in this city or taken granted for in the city for a really long time have dissipated and our reputation as a city has been tarnished worldwide. And some of that has to do with the crime. Some of that has to do with the condition of our streets. Some of that has to do with how we've squandered a lot of opportunities and in some ways, I feel like we, we act schizophrenic as a city. And, and I don't mean that in a, in, a, in a pejorative way to people that have that as a mental health issue. But we, in one breath, we want to be innovative and fresh and we're cutting edge and we have the best ideas. 
And then when innovation and the best ideas and others come to San Francisco, we shun them. City. But at the same time, we, if we truly want to recover and our economy is struggling and our economy will struggle going forward, we have to find a way to embrace that and be better about that. That would worry me too. Thank you for your time. All right. Thank you both. And thank you for the great soup. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, where we explore how the city will chart its future and address its biggest challenges. Send an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com to get in touch, or you can also DM us on Twitter. We're at sfnext. I'm Laura Wenis. And I'm Cynthia Lopez. We have one more episode of Soup with the Soups, then we'll switch back to regular episodes. But Soup with the Soups will return. We're going to try to talk to every member of the board. Next time on Fixing Our City, in our last Soup with the Soups, before we get back to other episodes for a while, we're having fall with Dean Preston. And of course, talking about housing. See you next week. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext. <laughs>